If you genuinely want people to pen test your thinking, then you have to create a culture that's conducive to it. And you have to create a safe space where people can feel comfortable to put up their hands and go, why do you do it that way? And not feel like they're going to get penalized for doing that. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Elliot Dellies, Chief Realist, and Dan Hood, Chief Optimist from Phoenicis Security. And today, we're discussing what diversity of thought really means in this industry. So thank you both for joining. I know it's taken us like almost a whole year to uh, get around to recording today's episode uh, because I've been sick. You guys have been busy. I've been following your journey. So I'm going to go to you, Elliot. I want to start with the mentality you foster, which is diversity of thinking and diversity of thought. Now, talk to me about this because, I mean, I've definitely got some theories, but I want to hear it from you first. Yeah, for sure. Look, first, it's it's great to be finally talking to you, KB. We've been trying to line this up for a long time, and I appreciate you giving us the time to have a chat about it. And look, diversity of thought, is, is it means a lot to me because it's quite close to home. Uh, for some context, you know, I, I started my career with a philosophy and communications degree uh, and, you know, entering a highly specialized and technical field, I, I was very self-conscious about this. If, you know, I'd, I'd go as far to say I was even kind of embarrassed about the fact that, you know, I had an arts degree and I was surrounded by people that had sort of, you know, at least at the start of my career, forgotten more than, you know, I even knew. But as my career developed, you know, I found so many of the root causes to security issues were, you know, fallacies or gaps in reasoning and confusing correlation with causation and a lack of good critical thinking and a lack of good, lack of good communications. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, those who are good with a hammer thinks everything a nail. And I think that's so true of specialist industries. And, and that's not to say that, you know, we don't need deeply technical skills. Obviously we do. They're critical to making it all work. But the more specialized we get, it becomes easier to become blinkered. And, you know, the deeper down the rabbit hole you go, uh, the harder it can be to sort of uh, recognize that, you know, you might have become blinkered in your thinking. And I've seen it firsthand. The best example I can give is, you know, I've run threat modeling workshops where like the admin staff just have the best insights because they're the people that know all the gaps and all the workarounds that they use to actually get things done. So whenever we run these workshops, I always encourage, you know, EAs and PAs to get involved because often they're the ones who know how things really work. Um, I've also seen it in things like, for example, doing some work with law enforcement and having these sort of field cops come in and starting to get some cyber training. And they just come up with these weird and fascinating attack vectors that are built from their real world experience of doing policing because, you know, they're investigators, they're detectives that know how people hide their behaviors, they know how people operate. And then when that gets translated to the cyber realm, they come up with these great insights that, you know, you just don't get if you just see the world entirely through an IT lens. Um, And also as well, this is reflected in our job titles. You know, the reason that we call each other the chief optimist and the chief realist even though I think we sort of go back and forth between who's the realist and who's the optimist on any given day, this is really about what we talk about. We talk about penetration testing each other's thinking. And what we mean by that is Dan and I have very different backgrounds. We have different perspectives. We have different solutions. And we often find that, you know, we'll come up with a different approach to a problem. And then we sort of nut it out together and pick the best of both of our ideas. And often that's what comes up with really cool and innovative ways of tackling these tricky issues. Wow, you've nailed it. So I think that those are really interesting thoughts and observations. So I'd like to ask a few more questions, but Dan, I'm going to go to you to hear your thoughts first. Yeah. So for me, diversity of thought is pretty key to cybersecurity. I think it's a really underplayed um, 
major value that that every organization should have. Um, my career especially started at Telstra. Uh, I dropped out of high school, didn't go to university, and really no degrees existed at the time for doing cybersecurity specifically. Um, and it was really shown in the the cybersecurity team I was working in at Telstra. We had someone who had like a Bachelor of Town Planning and had been an urban planner for a while. Uh, we had someone who had done civil engineering as their background. We had other people from marketing and all of these different really interesting backgrounds. And it was great because when we had problems come up, we would have these people throw in solutions from their backgrounds. And it was just really interesting to see what solutions would come out of it. Because a lot of times other industries have already solved the problems that we have in cyber. Uh, you know, Marketing especially is, is probably a pretty key example of this because they just know how to communicate with people, how to get an idea across, how to communicate it well, how to get people engaged in that idea. And it's almost such a key piece missing of cyber is, is finding that way to really get everyone involved. Um, another good example I, I always like to tell people about is a friend of mine studied computer science uh, previously, decided he absolutely hated it. This was quite a few years ago, but finished the degree anyway. He ended up going into working on a couple of ships and was doing, I think it was some kind of navigation or something like that. To be honest, I don't actually know what he was doing on the ships, but he watched basically as some of the captains and some of the guys working on these ships would spend days mapping out trips on these big paper maps, especially I think they were doing some kind of like oil or resource discovery type work where, you know, they would go and have to hit like a hundred points in the ocean, measure something and then come back and then bring that data back. And so he immediately looked at these paper maps and was like, this is the traveling salesman problem. It's, it's the standard problem taught in, in uh, computer science. So he created some software and was able to reduce this planning time from, from days to basically seconds. And now he's ended up turning this uh, software into his business. And it's pretty much his main job these days is just creating this maritime software. And I think you see that across, I guess, every industry where people come in from other industries that have solved these problems that we've got. We don't even realize that they've solved them and got these elegant solutions. And so bringing in this diversity of thought is, is really cool. Um, I think personally, I've seen people that have done jobs before and, you know, really like the diversity of thought that I think comes into value as well as people who have worked in the industries that we're trying to secure. So, for example, I used to work with basically someone who was a nurse and worked a lot in healthcare IT and things like that. They moved across into cyber and it was really cool because they were able to give these cyber recommendations, but understanding how they fit into the wider process. And also as they were communicating them with you know, these these nurses and other healthcare workers and explaining the, the recommendations they had to do, they understood the pain and had empathy for just basically how big of a task this is, or how, you know, some of these recommendations would harm the usability or accessibility of their business. And, you know, just understanding that it would take extra steps or extra process. They understood that pain and were able to talk to that pain and really empathize with the people. And I just thought that was absolutely awesome because it just got us such a better outcome on those kind of projects. Yeah, those are... Those are excellent stories, and I think you're spot on with, uh, especially your, your friend uh, that didn't like uh, doing the software engineering degree, but then worked on a ship, and ha how all that sort of played out. So I really appreciate you sharing those stories, and the marketing one is an absolute uh, winner. So the thing that I really want to know from both of you is, and I mean, I'm going to ask the hard question: is you know, there's so many people in the industry like, oh, diversity, diversity of thought, and this is what we need to do, but is that genuine though? And I say this because I've worked in big corporates before. They've got to say these things. And sometimes, and I'm not saying all people are like this, there are some people out there, it just doesn't feel genuine to me. Now, I know that you will both have very different views because chief realist, chief optimist sort of vibe going on here. But I really want to hear it from both of you. So, Dan, I'm going to go to you first, and Elliot, you can uh, jump in after. 
I think in my own career, it, it's been kind of an easier one for me to take on the diversity side of things because I've had so many just natural diversity type things come up that, that I've had to hire in. And so, you know, for me, I see diversity as it's diversity of backgrounds, culture, thought, you know, uh, experience, knowledge, degrees, all of that. Like there's not really one thing that I'll say, oh, yeah, that's diversity. Um, but for me personally, I've just seen so many so many times in cyber where we've hired people with just odd backgrounds and they've come in and just absolutely owned the place kind of thing. They've just delivered projects that we thought were, were pretty undeliverable and, and, you know, timeframes that were pretty undeliverable and things like that. Um, it, it's really interesting to see when you take a chance on someone who's really keen and passionate about getting into cyber and just seeing how they go with, you know, that diversity of thought thing. Yeah. Look, continuing on from what Dan said, I think that. To your point about lip service, KB, I think this is really important because I think organizations do genuinely recognize the importance of diversity. I think it's not having a good vision of how to execute on that. That's the core issue. So what do I mean by that? I, I love this analogy of, you know, the blindfolded people who are touching the elephant. I don't know if you know this one, but the idea is that, you know, you've got three or four people with blindfolds. And they're all touching an elephant. You know, one person's touching the trunk, another person's touching the tail, another one's touching the body. And each of them in their mind has a different image of what this elephant looks like. And based on their experience, I mean, it's completely rational to think that this thing looks like a long snake if the only part that you have touched is the trunk. And really what the industry needs is more hands on the elephant. You know, the more perspectives that we have, the more complete a picture of the elephant that we ultimately get. And this is where, you know, coming back to this idea, Dan and I pen test each other's thinking. This is why diversity, I think, is so important. We need to be able to pen test each other's thinking. And that comes down to, you know, having different lived experiences, different cultural backgrounds, different skills and training, having worked in different industries and different organizations. Exactly as Dan said, diversity is this sort of mosaic of all these different experiences that someone has had up to this point in their life that gives them a different view of what a cyber challenge or what their elephant actually is. And so if we want to avoid having a lip service approach to diversity, we really have to think about, okay, if we want more perspectives, if we want a broader variety of lived experiences in our people, well, how do we tackle that? And if we tackle it just as a recruitment challenge, then I think it is going to be, unfortunately, a bit too superficial and doomed to fail because really what we need is to be getting in early and encouraging people to think about these big picture problems most importantly, having a vision of their place in the industry, uh, because that happens years before someone actually puts in a job at. Yeah, very interesting way of looking at it. No, I haven't heard that analogy about the elephant, but I like it. Uh, okay, so here's my next question. So, and both of you would love your thoughts on this. You go to a conference, someone you know gets up there, they start talking about something technical. But there's going to be some Johnny in the audience will say, oh, well, you know, son, I've, only, I've got like 30 years in this space. And this person may have two, but this guy's a weapon. So then I think it sort of then is counterintuitive to the whole diversity of thought because both of you are absolutely correct in what you're saying. But then I think if you actually were to go out there in the market, yeah, some people think like that. But then again, there's always someone who is pessimistic that's always saying that, oh, but I've really earned my stripes in this space and you haven't. What are your thoughts on that? Dan, Elliot, who wants to jump in first? Look, I might jump in first with my two cents, but then I know Dan's got an awesome example about this one, so I'll hand it to you. My view of this is the key to change is getting in early. What we want is early education. We see this in Europe is actually providing cyber education programs in schools so children can develop a vision of their place in the industry and have role models and and feel like they have a part to play. That is really, I think, the the 
the heart of this is that you need to get in early because if you're trying to convince people by the time that they've finished university or maybe they're looking to make a career change, uh, then, then you're kind of relying on luck. And, you know, talking from personal experience, I never thought that I'd end up in cybersecurity when I was at school or university. I more or less fell into it. And ultimately, that's what we need to change in the long term. And also say as well, this is also reflective in, you know, the way we put together our resumes. You know, everyone always talks about the importance of soft skills. But if you look at a standard cyber resume, the first thing is all the technical certifications. Again, they are critically important. But what I always ask candidates is, you know, we need to focus on outcomes as much as skills and capabilities. And we need to genuinely invest in those soft skills. Things like project management training, leadership training, management training, negotiation training, de-escalation techniques, because so much of cybersecurity is about achieving compromise. And that's a real skill. And we need to make sure that we're encouraging investment in not just getting those technical certifications, but also understanding how to apply those in a pragmatic and empathetic way, because that's what it's like in the real world. And and Dan, you know, I, I know your example about the way that cyber is approached in Germany is, is a fantastic case study of that. It's not so much the way cyber is approached, it's uh, computer science. I lived in Germany for a while and uh, lived in a university town, and they had a really good program around, basically, I, I believe it was a four-year degree. And you did sort of three months per year as almost like a TAFE training course in computer science. So they would teach you how to develop code and the concepts and things like that. And then they had all of these internships set up for IBM and places like that, where for nine months of the year, you would then go and work in an organization developing code. Um, I believe the organization would get some kind of tax benefit for having all of these internships. There were so many internships available and things like that. But it meant at the end of that four years, people would come out with basically, yeah, like four times nine-month internships, plus this year of, of great computer science experience. And it gives them a chance to really apply that pra- the, the theoretical and the practical. Um, and I just really liked the way that that was set up. Um, going back to your comment before, KB, uh, around basically, you know, those people at conferences and things like that, that basically say, I've been in the industry for 30 years. Um, these people coming in with no experience and, you know, sort of... Uh, looking at that and talking about diversity of thought, I think, look, there is some validation in their, in their understanding that, look, people with that 30 years of cyber experience or 10 or five, look, they have seen a lot and there is value in that skill. Um, and so, you know, just remembering that those people, yeah, look, they, they have seen a lot. I think there's some validation there. But in saying that, I, I found myself that I've seen it all before, um, but I often get locked into my own thinking where, you know, I've seen the way something goes 10 times and it's gone X way 10 of those times. So I then get locked into thinking, all right, it's going to go that way every time. I've actually got a really good grad at the moment that works with me at Phrenesis. And basically, he questions this every single time. And it's so valuable because the number of times I'm like, yeah, here's how this is going to go. It's going to go, you know, X, Y, Z. And he's like, well, what about A? And it's like, look, that, that's a good point. I, I haven't really thought about that in a while. And, you know, a lot of times we find that it then does end up potentially going another way. You know, I've done a lot of these projects, but some of my knowledge is years old and, and things have changed over time. So it is really valuable getting both that that sort of junior experience where they're coming into the industry, they're fresh eyed, they haven't seen it all before, they've read it in books, but you know they're they're kind of questioning. But also that old, you know, I've been in the industry for four hundred years or whatever approach of I've seen a lot of it before, and here's how it usually goes, and here's some of the risks we see and things like that. Like I think you really need both as part of your diversity and thought. And there is real value in in those grads and those juniors coming into the industry who are just passionate and want to ask those questions and want to understand that. Um, yeah, there is some really good value from them. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And I'm definitely not trying to negate people's experience because, yeah, I mean, I've almost got 
15 years of experience, like generally speaking. And I think that when you reflect back on it, you're like, yeah, you know, I do know some things. So I genuinely, absolutely, uh, I'm hearing what you're saying. But what about this sort of elitism of, uh, so probably a little bit in terms of arrogance or a little bit further on from your point, there's people sitting back saying, well, yes, I've got 30 years of experience and I'm more better than you rather than, hey, I really value your opinion. Because what I'm hearing from you, Dan, is you're saying like uh, the grad, for example, like, yeah, of course you've got more experience than the grad, but you're also willing to take on board that feedback. So maybe for both of you, how do each of you go about pen testing each other's thinking? And do you ever get into uh, sort of uh, debates over it? Keen to hear your thoughts, Elliot? Yeah, constantly. I, you know, this is one of the wonderful things about working with Dan is that we we can argue tooth and nail about something, but we're able to distinguish, you know, our our our, our personal beliefs, our feelings from the argument in front of us, and that's super super important. Um, I I think. The key to this is just it's it's staying humble, you know. It's regardless of where you are in your career, having humility is super super important. And you know, obviously, I I've been doing things a particular way for a long time, but I'm always willing to consider the possibility that I'm wrong. And and I think that's super super important. And that's pretty much all I have to say on it. Yeah, I'm always happy to debate things, especially since I'm usually right and Elliot's usually wrong. No, 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 I'm kidding. Um, I, I usually find it's really interesting because even our diversity of backgrounds, where Elliot's got this very government-based background where he's dealt with some really complex threats. And, you know, there's a lot of organizations that talk about wanting to defend against APTs, but I think Elliot's probably one of the few people that, that I've seen in the industry that actually has experience dealing with APTs, where a lot of my background's a lot more of that simplistic you know, I'm just dealing with a lot of like smash and grab incidents is a good way I'd put it from smaller cyber crime groups and smaller threat actors, basically. And so we have this constant debate between us where, you know, I'll, I'll create a standard or something that really applies well to those sort of smash and grab attacks and the low risks. And Elliot's like, well, you thought about the more complex ones, because here's what I've seen in the past. And you get this really interesting output of, you know, basically trying to cater to those two environments. And, and we kind of meet somewhere in the middle that actually works out being a better product overall. I mean, you realize that it's almost like in the debates and in those ones where we almost have disagreements, that's where the best product comes out of and the best outcomes come out of, because it comes out of, you know, two sets of vastly different experience. It's everything, even in the way we work, I find where the number of times Elliot's like, hey, I've got this technical problem or, hey, I just need this this finance sheet whipped up quickly. That's, you know, my forte is just getting something out quick getting it, you know, the, the sort of 80% done as quickly as possible. Um, I then find Elliot's really good at the communicating with people, really, you know, writing elegant words where I'm very much the engineering type of, you know, black text on a white background is perfect. And, you know, Elliot swoops in and really like polishes it off and, and works well. And it just seems that the more you recognize that everyone's got experience and knowledge and things like that, and no one's really better than anyone else. We're just different. We've got different benefits and different disadvantages. We just need to realize where we've got weaknesses and things like that. And KB, to your example, I've, I've seen a lot of those elitist personalities at cybersecurity conferences. And yes, you're right. I've seen those people around. I've heard those comments. And it's, it is very frustrating to deal with. But equally, I've seen just as many people who are so excited to see these, these new people come in. Um, at the ASA conference, I went to one of the presentations. I can't remember what the title of the presentation was called, but it was someone basically who had just recently come into the industry and they were talking on threat intelligence. And it was really cool because there were some older, more experienced personalities in the room and they were kind of like, look, 
they've got some points wrong, but in the same respect, it's really cool that they've jumped in and they've given it a go and they're learning. They were like, I want to go up and chat to them afterwards, you know, give them some points of feedback, tell them where, you know, they've got it right and just kind of help them along where they've got it wrong. Um, and, you know, I'd love to hear more of their thoughts on, on this particular topic or thing. It was really cool to just see people who are passionate about helping others at the conference as well. Wow, that's excellent. That's awesome. I love to hear that. And you are right. So hopefully over time, uh, those elitist people will fade out. But one thing I'm curious to know now, actually, after hearing both of you and your uh, and, and your sort of philosophy and pen testing each other's thinking, for people who are listening that are, you know, in a startup like yourselves or they're running a team, how do you sort of foster that environment? How do you sort of say, all right, guys, we're going to take this pen testing approach because I, I heard Dan and Elliot speak about how this complements each other's skill set. Where, where can people start? I think, I think transparency is key. And, and this is also something important. You know, the pen testing, our thinking, isn't just between Dan and I. It's, it's something that we invite from everyone in the business. And exactly as Dan said, you know, some of our best suggestions have come from our junior staff. And obviously, you know, th- there's, there's a line to take. You know, there's an audit methodology and an audit methodology is not really up for debate because there's good reasons why we have, you know, defined audit criteria and we have to respect the segregation of duties. There, there are some elements to the assessment process that you just don't tamper with. But other than that, really, you know, I, I would invite, you know, every assessment that we make, every finding that we have to be critiqued. And if you look at things like, you know, open encryption standards, the reason that we have such trust in them is because they're subject to so much scrutiny over such a long period of time. And, and that's the sort of philosophy that I like to foster within our business as well, is that, you know, if you genuinely want people to pen test your thinking, then you have to create a culture that's conducive to it. And you have to create a safe space where people can feel comfortable to put up their hands and go, why do you do it that way and not feel like they're going to get penalized for doing that? Yeah, I reckon it's also about setting aside time and making it a priority. Like, you know, if your team's pretty busy all of the time working on things, you don't really get that time to actually sit down and brainstorm and, you know, have discussions and things like that. You'll really struggle with it. Um, And I think, yeah, and it's struggle to find time to really think about it and come back with that, that interesting feedback and those interesting questions. Uh, a thing that Elliot and I often do is just take an hour out of our day to have a bit of a discussion, discuss what's going on, question each other, all of that sort of thing. And it's really helpful. Or, you know, one of us will be doing a project and writing the proposal for a customer to then propose it to them. And they'll say, hey, you know, to the other one, what do you think of my approach? And we come back with some interesting things. We get that from the whole team. Um, Yeah, working with a few of my team members on the moment on an interesting project proposal and just getting their feedback. And it's really interesting where I think they've probably contributed about 80% of the content because they're just, they had more interesting ideas than I did and better ideas to, to complete it. And I think that that's really what it comes down to. Like Elliot said, it's just about uh, like creating that safe space to ask for feedback, um, reminding people that there's no stupid questions, all of that sort of stuff. That's excellent. I, yeah, this is, this is really helpful and it's definitely going to be helpful for the listeners as well. Now, I want to move on to the last part of our interview. Now, it was public knowledge a few months ago as I've started the interview with, uh, of course, we've had to delay it because I had laryngitis, you guys got busy, et cetera, but that Phrenesis became the first cybersecurity company in Australia to become B Corp certified. So firstly, congratulations. Uh, And secondly, and then thirdly, I think people don't actually really understand what B Corp means. And I asked this because I was speaking to someone at the conference the other day that was like, hey, like, what does that actually mean? And then my follow-up question to that would be, what was the motivation to do this, Dan? Yeah, so look, 
I'll be honest, and I've seen B Corps around prior to joining Phrenesis. I'd kind of seen the logo and was like, yeah, I kind of know what that is, I think. Um, and then when I joined Phrenesis, Elliot was like, yeah, we're going full into B Corp. And I guess I had to learn a lot more about it. So I've kind of come in from that aspect of um, not really knowing what it was prior to joining Phrenesis. So B Corp, if I can kind of put it in some simple terms, is really looking at how you become a socially and ethically responsible company to, to some extent. You know, it's looking at how carbon neutral are you? What is the multiplier of, you know, your highest paid employee to your lowest paid employee? How much leave do you offer your employees? It's basically, you know, sort of treating people with decency and respect and treating the the environment we operate in with decency and respect. And look, I would try and describe our motivation in the process, but I think Elliot absolutely kicks us out of the park every time he has to introduce it. So look, I might hand over to you, Elliot, to, to introduce why we did it motivation-wise. Sure thing. Look, in, in a nutshell, uh, the B Corp certification says that as a for-profit business, you are also committed to having a positive social and environmental impact. That's fundamentally what it's about, is that you are not simply trying to make as much money as possible to the detriment of you know the welfare of your employees, the welfare of your supply chain, the welfare of the environment. That's fundamentally what it's about. The reason why it was so important for Phrenesis is because we did establish this corporate philanthropy model as well. We wanted to be accountable. What, and what I mean by that is we wanted to demonstrate that we follow through on our commitments. You know, we, our, our, our mission statement is that we want to do cybersecurity for good and we want to be really transparent around how we're doing that. So by there's a whole corporate governance structure that sits around becoming a B Corp. So we embedded a commitment to social and environmental responsibility into our constitution, into our shareholders agreement, into every single employment contract. It's a KPI within everybody's performance agreements. It's something that is in the DNA of the business and becoming B Corp certified was a way of demonstrating our ongoing commitment to that. And that's also an important point. You know, becoming B Corp certified is kind of like the start of the journey, not the end of it. What I mean by that is much like an information security certification. There's surveillance audits, there's continuous improvement. And the idea is that you're constantly thinking about and improving the impact that your business has. And that thinking about component is really, really interesting as well. The business impact assessment that you have to do as part of the B Corp, I would recommend every business consider doing it, even if they're not planning on becoming a B Corp, because they just get you thinking more deeply about how you create a positive impact in your work. And I think that this is really awesome for the cybersecurity industry as well, because just by virtue of the fact that we work in this industry, we create a lot of positive impact anyway. You know, we protect sensitive data. We empower people to protect their digital lives. But like one tangible example, uh, there was a component of the business impact assessment that we did that talked about, you know, do we have dedicated policies to support victims of domestic violence? And at first glance, I thought this seemed like a bit of a left field thing. I thought, well, what can you really do as a company? So I looked into it and I saw that the Queensland government had produced what they called the Not Now, Not Ever report where they had a list of different measures that companies could put in place to help support victims of domestic violence. So we ended up going back and amending our HR policy and, and changing the way that we process some of our lead to be able to accommodate the recommendations of that report. And that's something that we just probably simply never would have considered had we not done the business impact assessment. So that's what it is. And that's why I feel like it's, it's so core to you know, who we are as a business. For me, practically, it was really interesting Elliot gave me this task of looking through some of the B Corp uh, impact analysis and kind of trying to figure out, um, you know, ones that I could I could add to. So I found this one on eth or sustainably sourced furniture, and I was like, all right, this must be pretty easy to give our team sort of a list of here's five websites or you know stores you could go to 
to buy sustainable furniture. And I thought, all right, this will be a five-minute job. I'll quickly knock this out of the park sort of thing. Um, and about three hours in, I was looking at all of this different sustainable furniture, and I realized that, A, there's so little available, um, and B, it's it's almost like each manufacturer or wholesaler has some sustainable furniture. And then you, you have these you know websites and stores that sell 50, 60 different suppliers of furniture. And so you know, I had to create this weird complex list of, oh yeah, if you want to buy a side table, well, you can go to this one website and it has to be from one of these two manufacturers who make sustainable tables. And I just realized how almost like you take for granted the idea of, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's really easy to be green and sustainable. You just got to spend money. But no, it's actually a lot harder than I thought to find these providers and find these organizations that, that yeah, really care about sustainability and the environment and just, yeah, the, the world we live in. It was just a really interesting one for me where I thought it was going to be a five-minute job, nice, easy one. I'm sure everyone wants to be sustainable and stuff like that. But in reality, it actually took hours to, to figure out. And that's, and that's a great point as well around the supply chain that Dan raises there because, you know, part of this as well is, you know, we want to attract clients and we want to attract staff that share our values. And, you know, having gone through the process, when you see another business that's got B Corp, you kind of go, ah, you know, we've, we've, we've had a shared experience. We know what that's like. We know the amount of thought that you have to put into this. Um, and, and it provides an indication for people that, hey, these are the sorts of values that we live by. And, you know, if, if you see the world the same way we do, we're keen to work with you. Yeah, I love that. I think that's excellent, guys. I really appreciate what you're both doing. It's definitely come a long way since the uh, Mad Men era, if you've seen that show. Uh, so we're taking a very opposite end of the spectrum, which I highly appreciate. So do you envision then, Elliot, based on what you, what you well, but based on what you both said, that more companies will become uh, B Corp certified? Are we going to see a shift in more of them popping up or what are your sort of thoughts on that? I'd love to see that. I mean, fundamentally, this comes down to a question of, you know, what sort of future do we want to live in? You know, do we want to live in a future where every corporate entity is just out to make as much money as possible? Or do we want to have a future where all hands are on deck to prevent disaster and support the disadvantaged? And I think that's, I think everyone would share that vision that we want to live in a society where, you know, empathy and care and respect is is built into the fabric of what we do, whether it's in our personal lives or our professional lives. Um, And I also feel like, you know, it's, it's a lot of small changes that result in significant change more broadly. Um, and, and, you know, again, I don't think that Pronesis has all the solutions. There's a million different ways to approach this, but this is our view of, of how we can contribute. And I'd love to think of a future where, you know, every organization, it is the norm rather than the exception to think about how you can build in some sort of positive impact into your day-to-day operations. And also as well to go, hey, this doesn't have to come at the expense of growth either. You know, you, you can donate money to high impact charities, or you can do pro bono work, or you, you, know, you can invest more in your people. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to have a thriving, successful business. And, and I think that that's really important too. Yeah, that's interesting. I think time will tell. I think there's a few that have popped up recently, but again, I think it's becoming more ubiquitous. So I guess uh, time will tell on that one. But I'd like to sort of uh, quickly discuss uh, both of your thoughts and your beliefs on the role of corporate Philanthropy. So, uh, would you like to share any of your thoughts on this? My view of corporate philanthropy is fundamentally, you know, if we expect governments to do all the heavy lifting when it comes to change, uh, you know, we're going to be knee deep in water before we start, you know, seriously dealing with our client, uh, our carbon emissions, for example. So, you know, the role of corporate philanthropy to me is really just thinking about, you know, how do we spend our time and how do we spend our money? Uh, again, in terms of spending our time, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity, 
so much good is created by virtue of the work that we do on a day-to-day basis anyway. So, you know, even things like, for example, doing some pro bono work, you know, you can generate thousands of dollars of value for organizations uh, because this is expenditure that they don't otherwise have to have. You know, we, we have valuable marketable skills. So thinking about how you can use that to, you know, support organizations that are doing the hard fight, I think is really, really important. But the other thing as well, and, and something that we've thought very deeply about is, you know, choosing the charities that you work with as well, because there can be orders of magnitude uh, of difference based on the organizations that you support. And fundamentally, this comes down to the fact that, you know, in, as a commercial business, bad products fail because, you know, consumers purchase those products. If they don't like it, they're not going to buy them again. Whereas when it comes to charities, the beneficiaries are typically not the donors. So it can be harder for charities to identify issues and fix issues because that feedback loop, uh, you know, isn't necessarily closed. And the other thing is the reason why I feel like corporate philanthropy can have such a significant role to play in, in building this sort of future is because you can just scale impact in such a, an amazing way that's so difficult to do as a consumer. So for example, you know, if, if you've really got a thing against caged eggs, you know, if you convince a friend, a friend to stop eating caged eggs, you might prevent two eggs a day coming from, you know, a battery farm instead of a free range farm. If you can convince your local cafe to make a change to its supply chain, that can turn into hundreds of eggs a day that come from, you know, a more ethical source. Then if you look at like a global change, you're talking about thousands per hour. So that's why I feel like, you know, thinking about the supply chain and thinking about donating money that scales with growth it has such an such an, uh, an inspiring potential for impact. Because when you're talking about a corporate scale, you can just create changes that are so difficult to change as an individual or even as a group of consumers. Yeah, that's excellent. I love that. I think uh, I love the way you're thinking. Uh, I love the way that both of you are very, again, complimentary. One thing I just want to ask quickly on that, probably then to you, Elliot, do you remember back in the day, I mean, even when I started working, it was all about the shareholders, all about how much money we can get. Are we going to see these types of leaders and people fade out over the coming years? Oh, okay, now you truly philosophical. I Look, I think human greed is something that will always exist. Where I'm hopeful is if we can create a system where human greed is harnessed for common good rather than just the success of the individual, then we'll do something that is, that is truly game-changing. I don't know whether or not that's going to happen as a result of something like getting a B Corp certification. I think there's components of human nature that will always exist. But what I think is that, you know, if we give people a clear path to how they can have a positive impact on the world around them and we can create it, you know, a society and a structure that rewards that and supports other people, you know, I, I think most people are fundamentally decent human beings and will tend towards a system like that rather than one of, of sort of, you know, mutual exploitation and mutual gain. Um, and, you know, I, maybe th- this is where I become the optimist. You know, I would like to think that a future like that is well and truly within our grasp. Well, those are excellent points. I, I've loved everything you guys have shared today. I think it's very valuable uh, and it's, it's a different approach that I've, I've had on the show. So I appreciate both of you spending the time today to talk to me. In terms of any sort of final thoughts or closing comments, uh, I'm going to give you guys a, an opportunity each to, to share what you'd like to leave our audience with today. Yeah, I'll jump in super quick here. Look, I'd say October of 2022 is probably going to go down as one of the worst months in Australian history when it comes to cybersecurity. And the one parting thought I have here is it's really important to be empathetic. Empathy has to be at the heart of everything that we do. And we need to extend that empathy to the people who entrust us with their data, the consumers, the the customers, 
But we also need to extend that empathy to, you know, our, our colleagues in cybersecurity who are having a really hard time this month. You know, burnout is a major issue in cybersecurity. Mental health is a growing issue. And we just really need to be conscious that, you know, when, when we're trying to get our point across and make it clear why cybersecurity and good data practices are so important to us, um, that that doesn't come at the cost of, of the care and the empathy of other people in our field. Um, because we, we do have to tread carefully and make sure that, you know, we, we are conscious of the fact that there's a lot of people out there in our industry who are having a really hard time at the moment. Yeah, probably from my point of view, just start thinking through how you can bring that diversity of thought into your team and especially where you can leverage new grads or new people who may want to sub out from a pre-existing role into cybersecurity. Look, it will cost you at the start of, of training them up and getting them experience, but look, they can be absolute superstars um, and you know can really save budgets with, with the enormous cost that cybersecurity skills is costing at the moment. Wonderful. I think both of those points are excellent. And a very lovely high note to to leave our audience with. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks so much for uh, being patient for taking us almost an entire year to record this. But I'm super grateful uh, for both of you for coming on the show, sh- sharing your thoughts and your insights for your time today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Great to chat to you, KB. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.